and welcome to another episode of Mere Fidelity, where we have conversations about life, theology, and and uh, the church and the culture. Uh, my name is Derek Rishmaui, and I'm joined by the full cast and crew once more, Matt Lee Anderson, Andrew Wilson, and Alistair Roberts. Uh, and we are going to have a second Ask Us Anything edition where you guys sent in a bunch of questions on our uh, Mere uh, Orthodoxy page, and you voted on questions, and so we've been taking the top questions uh, so far. And so today we're, we're picking up a few more because we didn't finish last week. And I just want to, just a personal note on the show, if I at any time seem a little slower than the rest of the guys, I just have to note, I wake up early to record these things. <laughs> And the UK guys have been up for hours being British for hours. Okay, Matt is Matt, and we don't count him. But I mean, I've just I'm, I don't know what it's that a means. Compliment, but it, it just doesn't it just doesn't compare. So if I seem slower and kind of sluggish, and just know in about five hours I sound British and smarter. So <laughs> that's a personal note there. Um, okay, just defend my honor. All right, but we have some questions. The first question we're going to tackle today is from Lindsey Kennedy. Uh, he says he wants to see hear a discussion of the warning texts in the New Testament and how to wed them with perseverance and assurance of salvation. So uh, apparently Andrew is working on this topic, and uh, so we'll hand it off to, to you first, Mr. Wilson. What, 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 what's your take on some of the, the warning passages in Hebrews and such places? Well, I, I think, I mean, the first thing to say is that they, they're all, well, many of them are different. They go into a lot, lot of different categories, I think. Um, I don't think all warnings are equal in, in that sense. They're not all attempting to do the same thing. They're not even warning the same people. I think there's some warnings which are clearly about listening to the words and teachings of false teachers who are not, in the context, even thought of as Christians at all. Um, and people who are actually wolves coming in to try and eat the sheep, and you just need to get rid of them and make sure that they don't destroy anybody. And that sort of warning, if you like, again, warning to believers to reject false teaching, I think is in a quite a different category from the warnings directed to believers, which are obviously uh, intended to motivate and uh, to facilitate perseverance. But and my reading of them is, that is, and I'm doing my, my PhD work in this in 1 Corinthians, but personally I think it's true of a lot of the warning passages, is that the warnings are perceived by the writer in question, in my case Paul and, and others, to be the means of ensuring that the promises of preservation are fulfilled. So that, that you have in, in Paul particularly, I think it, I personally think it's true in Hebrews as well, although that's more controversial, that you have uh, writers are able both to affirm uh, that perseverance is going to take place and at the same time to warn with the most forceful language imaginable, the believers to whom he's writing uh, away from falling away and towards perseverance and often invoking very strong language for it and very strong threats as to what will happen if they don't. And I think there have been many writers who've said, no, no, the warning, the warnings as they are are trying to separate out truth from false believers. Um, but personally, I don't read a lot of language that way. I think a lot of it is, and certainly in Corinth and in Hebrews and elsewhere, is directed, in my view, to believers saying, if you fall away, this is what will happen to you, you will face judgment, you will be disinherited from glory, etc. But 
the writer in saying that believes that their warning is going to be a means of ensuring that they don't fall away and that their promises of perseverance which you also have in the new testament in many of those writers uh, come to pass so that's how i see it and spurgeon's analogy for it which i still think is the best i've come across is really that you have a, a huge sign by the side of a uh, side of a cliff saying do not go past this line do not go past this sign because if you do you'll fall down the cliff and spurgeon says well, that is not to say that people are going to fall down the cliff it's to say they won't actually but they won't because the sign is there um and i i, I still think that is the essential function of most of those warnings directed to believers in the new testament passages so that's where i'm at with it so can i ask about that because it sounds like the conditional if you go down the um or if you go past the sign you'll fall down the cliff the the position is that that's a kind of impossible conditional does the christian know that that's an impossible conditional that it's impossible to for the believer, and this seems to be like the obvious question, the rub, the the nub of the matter. If it's an impossible conditional, um, how can it function as a legitimate warning? Right. If it, if there is in fact, if I know as a Christian that um, I can't fall down the cliff, why would I take the warning seriously? I think probably. Two things to be said about that. Firstly, is that I think the the view of uh, the relationship between divine and human agency that that presupposes um, is not necessarily a Pauline one or a New Testament one, in the sense that the the assumption, the the, the logic behind it, as in uh, if I have responsibility to keep myself on this, then God is not doing it, um, is. Oh, and if God is doing it, then I'm not ultimately going to be able to blow it. I don't think it reflects a Pauline view of the relationship between divine and human action in the believer. I don't. I think that's actually true at the front end as well of, of election and response, but uh, that's another issue for another day. But I, I certainly think Paul thinks it's true of ongoing sanctification, you know, the whole Philippians 2, 12 to 13, and, um, you know, work out your salvation because it's God who works in you. So I think the idea that... that Paul would think like that because we do. I, I would question. I don't, I, in fact, I don't think he does. I think he, you know, that by the grace of God, I am what I am. Yes, it wasn't me, but it was the grace of God. And I worked harder than all of them because it was the grace that was working in me. So I think Paul understands paradoxically that as our involvement and agency goes up, so does God's. And in a sense, rather than seeing them in a contrastive relationship. So I think that's one thing to be said, that I think the logic behind that objection, which very sensible in the kind of the way most of us would naturally see the world, I don't think is the logic that Paul himself has. Um, and he's the one who issues a lot of the warnings. I think the second thing to say, though, is that, that there are... I think there's one example which really helped me with this, which is in a, 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 that Ardell Canada came up with, or Kane Day, I'm not sure how to pronounce it. He write, wrote a book with Tom Schreiner, and he, he made the case that actually this is exactly what happens with this shipwreck in Acts 27, which I found a very helpful parable of the whole thing because it's such a clear, real-world example. And what he says is, look, an angel appears to Paul and says, none of these men are going to die they're all going to be saved and then paul turns on the strength of that to the men and says you mustn't throw the stuff over the side if you do you will die um and he's really warning them and he's also completely convinced from an angelic visitation that the men are not going to die and he doesn't see those two as intention he, he's using one as a means of the other now i don't know whether every individual christian knows for sure or can know for sure um that they are never going to 
slip or fall away, particularly, and the closer into rebellion you are, the more that's true. So I think in some ways the answer to your question is no, not necessarily. Not everybody who is at risk of falling away knows that they're safe because the, the very fact that you're behaving that way is often a sign that you may well, if you have a more Calvinist reading of it, that you may well be you know, not truly regenerate or whatever. And if you have more Arminian reading, then obviously it's not a not a problem at all. You say, well, yeah, you might be about to lose it. So I think often the individual in question, the individual receiving the warning doesn't necessarily know, but I think the person giving the warning in the biblical case does know. Um, and so that's, in a sense, that that's how I would handle it. It's interesting that Cal... Can I, can I keep... Yeah, sorry, go, Alistair. I have more questions. Calvin has a concept of temporary faith that the reprobate can have. And... Yeah that this is, I mean, he describes it, he says, I deny that prevents God from granting the reprobate also some taste of his grace, from irradiating their minds with some sparks of his light, from giving them some perception of his goodness, and from engraving his word on their hearts in some way. Otherwise, where would be the temporary faith mentioned in Mark? There is therefore some knowledge, even in the reprobate, which afterwards vanishes away, either because it did not strike roots sufficiently deep, or because it suffocated and withered. And so there is a faith that, a sort of temporary faith that doesn't respond in the long term. It grows up briefly and then withers away. And we need to distinguish our faith from that. And warnings are, as I think the Westminster Confession puts it, one of the means by which God preserves his people, as I think Andrew has been arguing. Uh, Alistair, i got to ask you really quickly. I can't see you. Did you quote that from memory, or were you looking that up? Because if you quote it from memory, I hate you. Is that the case? Did you quote that from memory? <laughs> I looked it up. I could quote okay, most of it from memory, but... Okay. Just had to check. Um, so I, I do think that my worry or my question could be untethered from the question of divine agency. It's not obvious to me that they are uh, connected, and I'd, I'd want to... I would want to untether them from the question of divine and human action. Um, but it seems to me, and this is, this is an interesting uh, and illuminating uh, uh, conversation for me. Um, it seems to me that there's a, a kind of way in which um, the fear of judgment uh, or the fear of this becomes a means by which, I mean, the claim is that the, the, the announcing that you might fall away and that these things might happen. It creates a kind of fear in people. And that fear becomes uh, God's means of keeping us in the faith, which is um, not the kind of announcement of the gospel, which many people are comfortable with these days, right? Where they, they, we like to talk about love casting out all fear and getting away from fear. Um, and it seems like if you take the warning passages seriously, there's a, a rehabilitation or a deepening of fear within the Christian life. It, it gives it uh, its, its due, as it were, and orients it towards the permanent things. And um, that's, yeah, that's just really interesting and worth, I think, thinking about more, at least for me. I think the, the, the issue is... I don't know what to do with that. The, there's a, a correspondence there, but isn't there, though, between the amount of... The amount of fear the writer is trying to summon within his readers in those various passages and the deviation from the normal Christian life that that person, that the personal readers are currently experiencing. So uh, if, you, if Paul is writing to uh, a very encouraging thank you letter 
or positive letter like this, 1 Thessalonians or Philippians, um, there does, there's almost no hint of that at all, and he's just very confident, and he's looking forward to the day when everything gets all wrapped up. If he's writing a much more fiery letter like Galatians or 1 Corinthians, where he's either got doctrinal or ethical failure or both, he's pulling out far more. And in a sense, the amount of fear that the... To use that language, um, the amount of fear that the person he's writing to needs to have is directly proportional to the amount of risk they have of wandering from the true path. I think with the writers of the Hebrews, because we've only got one letter, uh, it would be easy to think that this is just his... He's just got a much more Deuteronomic theology than Paul, and he seems he's just a lot, you know, he's basically likes fear that much more. I'm not sure about that. I think we perhaps could compare Hebrews with a potentially apostate context like Galatians 5 or 1 Corinthians, whatever. And we might well find that Hebrews had written lots of other letters and they said some of them sounded very like Philippians. There's no way of knowing that, of course, but I just wouldn't want to assume there was that that, that tension. But I think right, whether the writers are writing to different contexts or not, they are trying to elicit fear most when the person is most at risk of not fearing God enough. And I, that's obviously that is how Hebrews concludes his with warnings, you know, let us worship God acceptably with reverence and awe for our God is a consuming fire is where the chapter 12 ends. And I think that's sort of, that's the landing point for somebody who doesn't fear God enough and is at risk of drifting from the faith as a result. But I don't think that means necessarily all Christians need more fear in the, not fear of God yet, but in a fear in the, in, in the New Testament sense of, perhaps, well, I think as you're using it, Matt, concern for what might happen in the future if I don't. I don't think that's necessarily something that all Christians need. Um, I think it's something that Christians who are at risk of making very ungodly decisions or teaching false doctrine are in need of. I think also there's a danger of abstracting some of these warning texts from their redemptive historical context, particularly in the context of Hebrews. So I'll read out one of, I suppose, the classic warning texts. For it is impossible for those who are once enlightened and have tasted the heavenly gift and have become partakers of the Holy Spirit and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come, if they fall away to renew them again to repentance, since they crucify again for themselves the Son of God and put him to an open shame. For the earth which drinks in the rain that often comes upon it and bears herbs useful for those by whom it is cultivated receives blessing from God, but if it bears thorns and briars it is rejected and near to being cursed, whose end is 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 to be burned. And that's from Hebrews 6 verses 4 to 8. But if you look at that text within the context, I think the primary reference is not to individual Christians, but to the nation of Israel. Um, so a number of things, I think, that bear this out, that they crucify Christ again for themselves. There's a reference to the land that receives much rain over time and yet pro produces thorns and briars. And this would seem to be a more natural reference to a body of people rather than just a set of individuals. Um, there's also a larger context in Hebrews of warning about the collapse of the sacrificial system, the replacement of it. And there's no hope or atonement of those who return to Ju Judaism, just the destruction of AD 70. Um, the reference to falling away you find that same sort of thing used in the Old Testament and um, in the Septuagint for a um, state of trespass or unfaithfulness. And all the things that are mentioned in those key verses of the blessings were true of Israel in some sense or other. God visited them and his son. They experienced the light of the world firsthand. They saw the powers of the age to come and his signs and miracles. The spirit was active in their midst. And even some of them, like Judas, acted in the power of the spirit to cast out demons and in the light of all of this 
the renewing again to repentance, while it may have been possible in the past, because Israel was often renewed to repentance, it's now impossible, because they've crucified Christ again, not just crucifying him the first time, but also persecuting his people and rejecting them too. And there's no coming back from that. And I think, read in that context, it makes a lot more sense. It's a warning to the, the church, but it's primarily a statement about the state of Israel, that if you return to this, that's all that awaits. Um, whereas within the church, the writer of Hebrews is confident that better things are true of them. Well, that yeah, was... I agree. I have to say, I've read about these things, but I had not heard that interpretation before, and that's actually smashingly on point. So, Alistair, write a chapter about that on your blog. Um, <laughs> uh, fellas, are we are we talked out on this one? <coughs> yeah, let's, let's move I on. I think so. All right, cool. Yeah. Uh, well, let's move on to the next one. Um, <coughs> our next one was actually the future Protestantism one, which, again, we've explained. So the next one comes from David Russell Mosley. Or Mosley, I'm not sure quite how to say that. Um, I'd actually love to hear this group's thoughts on deification and theosis and its place in non-Eastern Orthodox Christianity. So, uh, deification or theosis, for those who are unfamiliar, is typically the way uh, that Eastern Orthodox Christians describe the process of salvation. It's uh, rooted in uh, passages, I can't remember if it's 1st or 2nd Peter, but 2nd, uh, right? Alistair, Andrew, which one? Second. Second, right, exactly. So we become partakers of the yeah. divine nature is, is the phrase there, and there's a whole underlying theology, much bigger than that one text, of course. But, um, you know, he, he became as we are, so we might become like as he is. And um, so there's this, there's this um, theology of, of salvation as... Um, not quite divinizing. That's that's not quite the the right word for it. I would say, but yes, uh, becoming like God or, or yeah, theosis or deification in a way that doesn't allegedly doesn't violate the creator creature distinction. Um, and so that's it's it's you know rooted in Athanasius and a number of the fathers and and very rooted in the Eastern tradition. So the question is, does any of that stuff have a place in? non-eastern expressions because typically uh protestants have been kind of wary about uh talking about becoming like god in that sense and the fear is that it breaks down the uh creator creature distinction and smacks of you know just general idolatry and such um and it, and it also underlies a lot of the kind of general practice of veneration in uh the saints and all that well then, somebody <laughs> left a window ah, open. Nice. <laughs> so, um, Alistair, did you have a thought or two on that? Um, I think first of all, it's it brings a broader horizon for our understanding of Christian salvation. Within Protestantism, the tendency has been to focus upon redemption from sin, and the original state that existed before the fall, and often to speak as if salvation was a restoration to that state where we enjoyed fellowship with God, etc. Not to a movement beyond that, although there may be statements about that in most contexts 
I think there is some recognition that we're moving beyond that original state. But yeah. they're fairly muted, I think, by comparison to what you see in an account of theosis. And I think that emphasis that theosis brings in that respect is healthy, that we're looking for something more than just return to the original state. There is an element of maturity, maturity bringing, being brought into our understanding of salvation, that we're being raised up to a greater height than we ever fell from. And yeah. for instance, speaking for myself, I believe that Christ would have been incarnate whether or not man had fallen. I believe oh, really? that... Okay. Yes, I believe that God's purpose was to raise mankind up to a far fuller communion with himself and a far deeper likeness. So, for instance, why do we believe that in the new heavens and the new earth and the resurrection, we won't be able to fall again like Adam did and repeat the same, the same sin? I think there's a, a conforming of the will to God um, and a glorification of the human being that is going to take place that did not exist prior to the fall. Um, man's will Absolutely. was far more ambivalent prior to the fall, and it was given a law and direction, but that will be written inside us and will be formed into that, that shape. And so I think theosis is an attempt to get at that, and for that reason I think we can learn a lot from it. There are a lot of other things that come with it, like palamism and these sorts of things that we would probably have more objection to as Protestants. Yeah. But from that starting point, I think we can work a lot with the doctrine and we yeah, th have much to learn from it. Yeah. Well, there's, there's been a number of reformed theologians lately who have, and, and I, and I absolutely agree about the um, being raised to a greater state than Adam fell from there. You know, I think certainly in reformed covenant theology, there was, there is a movement, there is an eschatological movement of the human uh, you know, toward the, the greater there was a, there was an intention beyond what Adam originally had. There was a there was an intention that we would obey and be confirmed in righteousness, and then and then move on from there. Um, and you can find that in I think Calvin and certainly in uh, more recent uh, but dead <laughs> Babing. Babing's actually magnificent on um, the the kind of the the aims of creation, but certain reform writers recently like Michael Horton and um, uh, Robert Lethem have both had sections on comparing and contrasting reformed approaches to glorification. So almost, almost saying uh, a lot of what reformed writers have been talking about in terms of the, in terms of the order of salvation, in terms of the end goal being glorification and conformity to the image of Christ uh, a lot of that's what Eastern Orthodox types have been talking about in the language of theosis and deification, and we're actually not as far off if you mess with some of the some of the metaphysics a bit. Um, and Todd Billings, and I think we'll we'll try and maybe link this under the show. Todd Billings has a, a great article on deification and theosis in Calvin, and uh, I mean he's got the language is there, right? And people forget that Calvin was a he was actually a close student of the fathers, and so he was reading Cyril and he was reading some of these guys. But he doesn't do with it exactly what the the Eastern Church does with it. Um, a lot of times, people say that Eastern Orthodox people act as if Eastern Orthodoxy has the um, you know the title rights 
to the to the language of deification and what Billings says no there, there's there's deification in the reformed tradition and in Calvin it's different and it's based on um, a different metaphysics and a different kind of an arguably more biblical conception of union and covenantal union and and all that but um but it's there nonetheless and so I, I I would I would agree I think there's a lot to to learn in conversation even while you know I as a reformed Christian would um, definitely want to tap the brakes on some of the metaphysics you know the palamism and things like that that yet um, attached to the idea and language of deification and almost gets read back into the fathers by some later Eastern tradition, or at least from my perspective. So um, I, I definitely think there's a place for cautiously appropriating. I like to stick to to more classic, I don't know, Protestant biblical language, even while um, appropriating some of the themes. But but I, I don't I don't necessarily get freaked out when I see somebody talking about it because uh, I think that it can be. Yeah, go for it, Matt. So I think, I mean, I think you guys are, are right. And um, I, I share a lot of the same instincts. Uh, I, I I do wonder if there are other differences. And, and Derek, in your setup, you actually alluded to this. Um, you know, there is the one verse uh, out of, was it Second yeah. Peter, uh, Divine Nature? Um, that the uh, par- partakers of a divine nature. And you said something like, but there's a whole lot of el- other things that go into it. And one of the things that interests me about the difference is just uh, that the fundamentally different ways of reading scripture potentially that stand beneath the appropriations of the doctrine yeah. and um, and the kind of theological methodology that goes into constructing it. So uh, a few years back, Bruce McCormick, I think it was, was giving a paper at Princeton on justification. What's at stake in the current? Oh, phase. yeah, yeah. That really one, great paper. Yeah. I listened to the audio, and in the Q and A, someone brought up uh, that verse from Second Peter and said something like, "You know, well, what do you make of this? It seems like there's a kind of theosis going on." And his response was something like, "Well, I wouldn't want to hang a whole doctrine on one verse um, like that." <laughs> and on the one hand, I think, "Yeah, that's right." Um, I'm not sure I'm ready to commit myself to um, a doctrine based on that verse alone. Particularly, it's a, you know, what does partakers of the divine nature mean? I, golly, that's a it's a bit of an obscure phrase just on its own. Um, but then I think, well, you know, I haven't read all the Eastern Orthodox. I haven't actually read much of the Eastern Orthodox canon in terms of contemporary theologians. But I get the sense that there's a, a um, other ways of reading the Bible that they're going to deploy to find other types of justification for it. Um, even beyond the metaphysics that many Protestants these days particularly are going to look at and just be a little wary of or nervous of. And I think that's an interesting, it's at least something that I would like to read more about and think more about to find out whether that's true. But that's my impression. Yeah, I think think it's interesting that the the vagaries of the language sometimes make it look like there's a much greater difference between the way that an Eastern Orthodox theologian in the 4th century would have said it and the way a 21st century Protestant Reformed theologian would say it. But I think when he, 
it, you hear for the first time the idea of divinization or deification. It can sound, goodness me, you think that humans are joining the Trinity or something like that. It, it sounds very odd to Protestant or Reformed ears, I think, to use that language the first time people come across it. I remember the first time I read it about, read about it, I thought, wow, that's a, a zany belief. And then as you start reading into what people mean by it, and a phrase like partakers of the divine nature, you think, well, that's clearly there, and conform to the image of the likeness of his son, well, that's clearly there, and union with Christ. You think, how, where do we get the idea that union with Christ was anything less than participating in the divine nature in some way? You know, that that's clearly what Paul has in mind in his understanding of what it means to be united with Christ, quite, quite what it, exactly what that means, and obviously uh, ontologically and so on, obviously needs to be teased out just as it does in 2 Peter, but I think the, the gap between to Peter's phrase, and a lot of the language Paul repeatedly uses, with which Protestants are very familiar, is really not very large. And I think that sometimes what you have two opposite reactions which come in. One is people hear new word, new concept, sounds like people are becoming transcendent and therefore react against it. But I think there's also quite a self-conscious um, preference for very old, slightly arcane-sounding, slightly interestingly Eastern-sounding terms yeah. amongst another kind of emerging crowd, which is, I don't just mean in the emerging church with a with a biggie, but I mean just generally people of our kind of age who hear, wow, new label, wow, Basil said it, Athanasius said it, and I've never heard it in my church. Hey, I'd love to embrace that. And actually, I know I've got some of that in me, and I think, wow, this is, a, this is a great idea. And I think often when you unpick the label and go into what is the reality that's being denoted here, the gap between, as Derek, I think, has already said with Calvin, the gap between what is being taught in a Reformed context about union with Christ and what's being taught in an Orthodox context about theosis is not that large And if you, you remove some of the more extreme elements at both ends. And I, I think that's just worth bearing in mind. There's often much more of a label identification thing going on than actual debate about the substance of the doctrine. Yeah. I think that's, that's true. On the other hand, I would, I would wonder whether there's a significant difference in accent that results from this, because I think certainly in my experience, reformed doctrines of union with Christ often focus, and I'm not sure how to say this without, without falling into the typical um, stereotype of legal versus relational or anything like that. But Don't do it, Alistair. Don't do it. <laughs> no. <It's prim> <laughs> Mind the gap. That's a bit Yes. But there is a danger, I think, of speaking of a relationship in terms of union with Christ that doesn't really get deep into our nature. It's something that exists as a formal relationship between two parties, but doesn't really capture the full weight of the biblical language of being transformed into the image of the Son or, or the sort of language that you find in Paul. But we all with unveiled face beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as by the Spirit of the Lord. I'm not sure we capture that, the power and the force of that in our language of union with Christ as much as we could. Um, it is there, but sometimes it takes a bit of teasing out. And many people are used to hearing the language of union with Christ primarily in terms of the doctrine of justification, for instance, where the union being spoken of is often described as one of legal exchange. And I think as a result, maybe they've missed some of the deeper things that are going on here that you will find in the fuller accounts of union with Christ and Calvin and others. But it yeah. takes a bit of digging, and it's not something that comes immediately to our ears. But I, theosis... I 
kind of captures that? I would say that Lethem, Lethem's book, Union with Christ, and again, Horton as well. Horton does a good job in, in Union with Christ of dealing, teasing out some of the differences in terms of uh, kind of like participatory ontologies versus covenantal ontologies. But Lethem does a good job of also saying, the, the two of them, and Billings too, they all do, of just saying there are different dimensions to Union. There is definitely the clear covenantal forensic dimension that is it is ineradicable and and necessary but there is also um that there are those deeper spiritual relational kind of participatory but you have to you know fudge that so you don't just jump into i don't know like the ah what are their names ah Radical orthodoxy. You want to go into full-on radical orthodoxy participation or something, but but still, there is that deeper dimension there, and especially when you consider that union with Christ is also caught up with the dynamic, the gift of the Spirit, union in Christ, and 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 the gift of the Spirit, and being in the Spirit and through the Spirit, participating in Christ, and all that kind of thing, and the transformation of human nature. I think there's that element with the reform concerns. The the the, the reason, two of the reasons we've been skittish about it is one. The you know, Reformed and Protestants have been utterly terrified of of uh, idolatry. The danger of idolatry is just part of the kind of the pro- Protestant psychological makeup, and so um, you know the 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 merging and the possible um, you know uh, confusing of the divine and the human, and then Chalcedonian concerns. Um, the fear of the of the mixing of the two, of the two natures, um, that's that's definitely an, an undercurrent running in there, uh, and so I think that is part of it. And and then again, what Matt's point about the, the different languages, uh, the different um, focuses in terms of um, <clears throat> emphasis. Let's be honest, Protestants have focused a heck of a lot more on 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 Pauline epistles. Peter, First Peter, not like we've ignored. Petrine language, but again, that one or two verses there, and we're, we've been fighting, you know, they were fighting the justification debates for a long time, they were fighting the forensic debates for a long time, and so um, I think it was always there, but it's just a matter of emphasis due to polemics and due to the due to context, whereas I think some of the Eastern Church hasn't really been, hadn't really been engaging a lot of those polemics until they had to uh, later on in, in their uh, in, in their theological tradition, and so because of the early parting of the ways, and they're kind of being off on the eastern corner, and by corner I mean massive chunk of the world. Um, they, they weren't... <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I mean we, we forget that, like the, you know, the eastern church is a massive chunk of the world, but I mean, we, they weren't caught up in all the justification base. They weren't caught up in all the okay, and, and I think that there is that proper Protestant kind of parsing of all of these of all the ordo that i don't think you maybe get on the eastern side as much uh it all kind of just runs together um so yeah i mean there's a lot of issues i think we're gonna link you're gonna link um at least the billings article and i i would say if you're interested in this pick up uh lethem's union with christ uh maybe pick up horton on that uh, also union with christ and then billings Union with Christ, um, all of them have engagement with that that's very helpful. 
on uh, parsing the, the different the different issues in play. Um, fellas, are we are we uh, are we a wrap here? I think we're at. Yeah, I think so. I think so. I think we'll uh, take up other questions at future yeah. points. And we are we are working on getting um, some guests on the show that we're very excited about. We will unveil that later. Um, but the other guys need to read the books, so they're a little slow on that. I'm not going to kind of. Uh, sorry. <laughs> Reading's very hard. What can I yeah. say? Um, so I, I just got to get in again, once again. It is early for me, and these. Oh I'm come so, okay, on! All right. With all that, um, thank you for being patient, wonderful reader, uh, listeners. See, early so. Uh, listeners, if you found this beneficial at all, uh, please share. Please go over to our uh, iTunes uh, podcast thread and rate and review us. Um, but you've been great, listeners. Uh, hopefully, this was a blessing to you and and the church at large. And we will we will talk to you. You'll you'll hear from us soon. Blessings and go with the grace of Christ. <laughs>